as we worship you, there is the absolute witness to the fact of truth of your word that we have been created, Lord, uh, for your pleasure and to bring you glory. And we thank you for all of the ways that you give us to do that. And we have glorified you in our worship, Lord, in spirit and in truth. And, and we wish we knew every language in the world to be able to say the same things in every language to you. But you have people all over the world doing just that. We bless you tonight, and we ask that you'd continue to meet with us as we study your word this evening and uh, glorify yourself, magnify yourself in our hearts now as we study your word by your Holy Spirit, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Good evening to you. Lamentations, chapter 1 this evening, book right after Jeremiah, and uh, as we make our journey through the Scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, after Lamentations, we will jump into the New Testament for a gospel and then uh, continue progressing through the Old Testament. If you're with us this evening and you don't have a Bible, uh, the pastors are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and wave to them. They'll put one in your hand, mark to our passage this evening, and if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you uh, tonight. Uh, the book of Lamentations is a, uh, an epilogue to the uh, book of Jeremiah, and it is a very, very mournful uh, epilogue uh, to the book. You say, how can it be more so uh, than Jeremiah was? But uh, indeed, it goes into a greater depth in some respects than Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a book of warning, and Lamentations is a book of, of mourning. It's made up of five chapters, each of which is a dirge, and a dirge is simply a lament for the dead. And, uh, and uh, this lament, these five laments that make up the five chapters of Lamentations are uh, funeral dirges written for the death of the city of Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonian invasion and, and, uh, and conquest. Uh, the tone of the book as we read it is mournful, and, and as, as we read it, there should be the recognition that we're, what it, we're heading into is uh, kind of like five uh, eulogies for the city, only you, th you can't really use the term eulogy in a memorial service. Uh, typically, there's a section of it that's a eulogy, where, and it means to speak well of, and people get up and speak related to the deceased and so forth. Uh, this is an absolute lament. There's nothing uh, good that can be said about it. But the realization that when we go through the book of Lamentations, we're actually attending a funeral service. Uh, might be, I mean, here we are, we've just finished Jeremiah. On Sunday morning, we're in the first three chapters of Romans, and so here now we are in a funeral service in Lamentations. So uh, buck up, we'll make it, we'll get through it. But it's a lot of, uh, a dose of the same medicine here for a while, all of it good, but it's kind of uh, concentrated. And that's why it's nice when the worship team comes up and they don't do necessarily songs that are in line with what I'm teaching, though uh, perfectly led by the Lord because they give us another angle to the Lord while we can find ourselves uh, concentrating on a particular theme, a difficult one, uh, for a long period of time. But um, we're attending this. Uh, Jeremiah takes us through this memorial service for uh, Jeremiah. And uh, it's, it's, uh, it's not a typical... Uh, funeral service where uh, someone has died at the age of 92 or something like that, and they've lived a long, uh, godly life. This is a memorial service that is uh, tragic. 
the kind that you never, ever want to uh, attend, and, and uh, the memorial service of someone who's tragically died because of the deliberate choices that they've made in their life that has resulted in a, a premature death and uh, a completely unnecessary death. Uh, so often uh, we'll attend those kind of services related to uh, someone who has become a drug addict or become an alcoholic, and they die young as a result of their sin. And uh, it, it isn't just the lament that we've lost the person, but it was so needless. Uh, there could have been so many more years and so forth. And this is the kind of sorrow that's brought out uh, in, uh, in the book. And again, we're attending the funeral service of the city of uh, Jerusalem. And he describes the, the grief and the mourning that Jerusalem experienced uh, over the destruction of the city and also of the temple because of, uh, of her sin. It is interesting that, as we'll see in a moment, Jeremiah is the author of uh, Lamentations. And it's, uh, while he never identifies himself uh, out and out uh, within the five chapters, uh, the parallels are so strong. Uh, the language, the events, and so forth are so strong with what is written in Jeremiah. It really can't be any other author uh, but uh, Jeremiah. And here Jeremiah speaks to the nation of, of Judah, speaks to Jerusalem, calls on them to repent 40 years. They don't heed his warnings at all, and, uh, and then this great destruction comes. And one of the beautiful things about Jeremiah, he was the weeping prophet. That was uh, uh, the moniker that was given to him, is that he didn't rejoice over that. I was right. Here we go. See, huh? if you'd listened to me, there was none of that. He knew that w was the truth. That was the faithfulness of God to stand behind the prophecies given to Jeremiah was something that, um, you know, surely he recognized as a confirmation upon his ministry, but he took no joy in the destruction uh, of, of the city, and, and, uh, uh, and, it, and it really comes through as he describes it here in the book of, of Lamentations. And there's something, uh, imagine as you put yourself in Jeremiah's place, and yet you might be uh, to some degree in that very place yourself, wherever God has you, uh, living for him and serving him in the city of Modesto or beyond. But for 40 years, he warns, he warns, he warns, this is coming. And he sees it with the clarity of a prophet. He sees, he sees decades before the culture sees uh, what's coming, what are the implications of the decisions that are being made, the judgment that it's going to force God to, to pour out and uh, so forth. This is one of the uh, great challenges that we face as Christians, is that our eyes have been opened as Christians. We see things uh, that a non-Christian doesn't see. Uh, we see sin in a way that the world doesn't see it. We see the implications of it. As we're talking about this morning and looking at the book of Romans, we see decisions that are casually made by other people, and we see the implications. We see this puts uh, an individual or a nation on a path, and paths lead some places. There's consequences to decisions, and how much of that is even being taken seriously today, that there are consequences related to decisions. So we see the, the trouble afar off, as, as Solomon wrote in the book of, of Ecclesiastes. And uh, it's the price that the prophet and the prophetess pays in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. They see far ahead of the culture, even far ahead of God's people, but he raises, uh, God raises him or her up to then declare not only to the nation but also uh, to, to the people what's coming that they don't see yet. 
but those that have that calling uh, see it and then are called uh, to warn. Again, authorship uh, by uh, Jeremiah. The time of the writing is interesting. From the descriptions that we'll see here in just a moment, it would appear that uh, Jeremiah pens the book of Lamentations immediately after the events involved in Jerusalem's overthrow by the Babylonians, uh, long before he is taken uh, into Egypt. In fact, as we read through it, uh, there's a sense that the book is even being written while the city of Jerusalem is still on fire from the pillaging of, of the Babylonians. The structure of the book is very interesting as it's made up of the five chapters. Each of the chapters is a separate poem, and uh, each of the five poems has the common theme of the destruction of Jerusalem by uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And the first four uh, of these poems, they have an acrostic uh, structure to them. There are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, and uh, chapters 1, uh, 2, and, and 4, there are 22 verses that each begin with a corresponding uh, Hebrew uh, letter. So you can imagine it is, uh, it's very poetic, very um, artistic in its communication. Imagine if you were to put together some kind of an acrostic uh, uh, a poem or, or something like that, and you had to use, begin each uh, stanza, so to speak, with each uh, succeeding letter of the alphabet. What do you do when you get to X? What do you get to do with Z that uh, says something that's actually meaningful related to the theme? And so, a beautiful witness to the Holy Spirit, really, uh, behind uh, the, the writing of it. I think that the acrostic it's written in acrostic form, uh, probably the reason that so many others are in the, in the Old Testament. Uh, other portions like Psalm 19 is an acrostic and so forth is, that, um, is the, um, the idea for ease of memorization. But I, I think it also, uh, in the use of the acrostic form here, here you have, uh, it's communicating that here in Lamentations we have uh, God's description uh, of the destruction of Jerusalem from literally from A to Z. As someone has uh, said, communicating that every letter in the Hebrew alphabet is needed to express the depth of God's sorrow over the destruction of the city. In chapter 3, it's 66 verses, and so uh, each, uh, each letter is, uh, of the Hebrew alphabet is ascribed to uh, three verses in a row, uh, starting with the same letter. Um, even in the final chapter, chapter 5, uh, even though it has 22 verses, it, it, the same number as the Hebrew alphabet, it isn't acrostic in its form. In terms of the theme, and uh, you'll recognize I'm in a, a little calm mood tonight on uh, I'm not going to rush through uh, chapter 1, and it may be all that we get to uh, this evening, but this sets the tone for it. And the reason I'm not in a hurry uh, to race through uh, chapter 1 or the early portions of Lamentations or to uh, just kind of read through it and say, uh, wasn't this awful and it didn't need to happen concerning uh, Jerusalem, is that to me, Lamentations provides us and, and the whole world with a very, very necessary reminder that there are consequences uh, to sin. 
consequences that are almost uh, uh, indescribable in terms of the sorrow and the misery and the pain that are caused by them. And the reason the book of Lamentations is so important to me and so important to teach, and I'm glad that you're here tonight, but to be able to teach it to you and to teach it to all of us, but the younger the person, uh, the better in this regard, is that the book reveals to us what so much of our culture and our uh, entertainment in the form of books and movies and uh, music and television shows and etc. so often hides from us uh, while it glorifies and romanticizes sin and rebellion against uh, God's commandments, and that is the inescapable consequences of sin and rebellion against uh, God. And the book of Lamentations corrects this. Uh, when you, so often when you would watch television or you would watch movies or uh, read uh, books that are popular and so forth in terms of uh, 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 f- uh, fiction, and, and you see the glamorization of sin, uh, you see the glamorization of sexual immorality, the dabbling in drugs, the club life, the whatever, 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 whatever you want. And then what they don't do is then follow that person then through the remainder of their life and to show the terrible consequences that that person will pay in their life uh, for uh, their engagement in, uh, in sin. And the Word of God never, ever leaves us vulnerable uh, to the world that we live in on that kind of a level. Uh, it, it, the Bible speaks candidly uh, that sin is pleasurable. It is absolutely pleasurable. There'd be no hook to it. It would be like having a a bowl of uh, Brussels sprouts put in front of you. What would it take to say no to that? No, some of you like it, I know, but you, even you put butter on it. But uh, for, the, for the most garlic something, you know, so it doesn't taste like those awful little uh, balls of uh, green that they are. But sin would be very, very easy to say no to uh, if there was no hook to it, if there was no pleasure. So the Bible's candid in the fact that sin is pleasurable, but it also declares that it is pleasurable only for a season. There is always a hook with sin, and, and always there is that hook. And uh, the, pl- the, the pleasure of sin is a very, very uh, short one. It emphasizes uh, to us uh, one of my favorite Proverbs in this regard, Proverbs chapter 13, verse 15, a good understanding giveth favor, but the way of the transgressors is hard. Again, you would never know it to turn on the television and watch, you know, all of these reality shows of uh, whoever these wives are in Beverly Hills and Atlanta and all this other kind of stuff that you've got, all these things and the glamorization of this and the life of the rich and famous and so forth, and as it's put before us. And that's all we see. We never see them uh, heading to their medicine cabinet night after night to try and somehow do something to be able to go to sleep. We don't see anything of their guilty conscience. We don't see the physical consequences of sin. All that is kept from us, and the book of Lamentations reveals to us that that is all there. It's all real, and nobody uh, escapes it. 
You know, you, uh, and, and so the destructive nature of sin, the consequences uh, of sin. And uh, when you talk about sin being pleasurable for a season and, and, uh, and so forth, the tragic consequences of sin, you know, you ask yourself, why, why are there always bad consequences to sin? Why are there not uh, good consequences to sin? And the reason that there are always bad consequences related to sin is it, 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 we have not been created to sin. Uh, that's not what we've been created for. Uh, sin itself, the consequences of sin uh, within our life teach us in and of themselves that this is not the way to live. And it's ingrained right within our hearts, our minds, our, our, our physical uh, bodies. And so, uh, I, get, um, I, I, have a, I get, in, the older I get, the more protective I get of people and the more protective I, I get of younger people in younger generations. And to me, it's just criminal what goes on uh, in our country, in the entertainment industry, where sin is glamorized and the consequences aren't shown. And I, I think it is absolutely criminal. And uh, there's going to be a special uh, judgment uh, for it. All of the heartaches, all of the uh, hardships experienced by uh, Jerusalem uh, recorded here in the Lamentations, all of them had been predicted 900 years earlier when uh, Moses declared to the children of Israel in Deuteronomy that if you obey God, you will be blessed. If you disobey God, here are the curses upon uh, disobeying uh, Him. And it isn't even that God actively curses disobedience, though He can do that if it gets taken to a certain place, there is a curse that is already built into uh, 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 sin. And, uh, but there's grace in the book as well. I wanted to give you some hope related to that. Um, it, it, it doesn't uh, fill the book, but it, it's there. And we'll see that God hadn't abandoned His people at all. Uh, he's still faithful. He would restore them uh, and, and, uh, as they would uh, repent and turn to Him. The first dirge here in Lamentations chapter 1 is, uh, describes the desolation uh, that Jer Jerusalem experienced because of her sin. And to me, the perfect title for chapter 1 is the sorrow of sin, uh, because sin always brings sorrow into a person's life. Maybe not in the first five minutes or in the first five days, but it is always coming. And so this description of the consequences of sin that we so desperately uh, need to hear even today. Jeremiah writes, how lonely, speaking of the city of Jerusalem, how lonely sits the city that was full of people, uh, and uh, how like a widow she is, who was great among the nations, uh, the princess among uh, the provinces has become a slave. And so Jeremiah or Jerusalem at one time, very, very hustling, bustling city and a wonderful city, and now it's completely, uh, you know, left in, in loneliness and isolation as a result of this judgment uh, related to her uh, sin. And, and Jeremiah sees her as kind of a widowed princess who is, uh, sits alone at night weeping over the loss of her husband and her children. Now, remember, for the Jewish people in the Old Testament, uh, the, the imagery in the New Testament, we are called the bride of Christ. 
that's the relationship that we have uh, with God. In the Old Testament, the children of Israel were considered to be the wife of Jehovah. And so, in this horrible destruction of the city, the physical loss and all, the greatest loss that, that she experienced was her, the loss of her husband, so to speak, and uh, left in isolation because of her sin. And verse 1 teaches us that sin results in loneliness. It results in isolation. It always does. It's interesting how sin, once you start to engage in sin, then it starts to uh, take control of our life. Uh, then it becomes a dominant feature in our life. And then uh, we feel compelled to hide that sin within our life. And ultimately, it, it leads to a life of, uh, of isolation, a very unhealthy uh, life of isolation. Verse 2, she weeps bitterly in the night. Her tears are on her cheeks among all of her lovers. She has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. And so, sin uh, results in abandonment and being forsaken and uh, being betrayed. So, here are all her former political an uh, allies that she had who led her into a rebellion against God, to, to go in a rebellion against Babylon, and, uh, and they're all gone now. They've, they've dropped her at the drop of a hat as soon as things got hard, and she becomes now a forced laborer, and uh, she's lost uh, her, her wealth. And so, all of her idols are gone, all of her fellow uh, idolaters are well. And she discovers uh, a very hard lesson, and that is uh, uh, companions in sin. A misery loves company, but companions in sin, uh, that is a fickle group of people. And if you think they're going to stand by you when you have lost everything, uh, just like the prodigal son, uh, then you've got another thing coming. And it always ends up in this this uh, uh, isolation, and uh, the Lord is a, a friend who sticks closer to us than a brother, and uh, after their long backslide, everybody else is gone. Of course, the Lord comes in and helps to restore uh, them, and when He does that in our lives, it makes us love Him all of the more, uh, but uh, sin results in uh, abandonment. I remember when uh, I, Karen and I, we had just moved from uh, Napa to Modesto to uh, start the church, and I was uh, driving through a particular neighborhood. It's a rough neighborhood up on the, the north end of town here. And uh, as I was driving through it in the middle of the day, there was this woman, 20-something, uh, walking down the middle of the street, and she is absolutely weeping, almost to the point of convulsions. And so I'm driving by, and uh, I see her in that condition. I roll, pull up next to her, and I roll my window down, and I said, is there anything, can I help you? Are you okay? And uh, she then uh, told me that, that, uh, about her plight and how it was that she had, uh, she had become a drug addict at a young age and then uh, engaged in prostitution to support the habit and so forth and all of that. Uh, well, listen, I just came from Napa. <laughs> so I, don't run, I didn't grow up with a lot of drug addicts, uh, some, uh, but not a lot. And I certainly didn't know any prostitutes. Uh, in all of my growing up in Napa. So, this is kind of a new thing. And I said, is there anything I can uh, do to help, uh, help you, so to speak, without giving her money or something like that? 
and uh, she said, would you contact my parents and, and tell them about the condition that I'm in? I said, certainly, give me your, their names and give me a telephone number, and she did. And so, you know, I, I called them up, and I made, I'm almost ready to read them the riot act over uh, how come they weren't helping their daughter and so forth. And, uh, but I didn't go there. I, I just talked with them, talked about what I uh, ran into with their daughter. And the father explained to me in a wonderful, gentle way. Uh, he explained the fact that this was a long history that he had, they had with their daughter. And her decisions in life were so painful for he and his wife to go through all the ups and downs of these absolutely horrible decisions that it was destroying them. It was killing them faster than it was going to kill her. And he said, we had to ultimately just put up uh, barriers and margins around this, and ultimately we just had to cut off all communication altogether. And it was the first time that I had run into that kind of a situation. Remember, when I came here to start the church uh, back in 1985, um, I had only known the Lord for a very short period of time. And, uh, and it was the first time that I ran into this graphic illustration right before my eyes that sin really does lead to uh, abandonment. It ends up driving everyone away. Uh, all of the healthy and most uh, important and meaningful relationships in life, it drives them out of our life. And it's a terrible casualty uh, for sin. And then in verse 3, Judah has gone into captivity under affliction and hard servitude. Uh, she dwells among the nations. She finds no rest. All her persecutors overtake her in dire straits. And here we have uh, the, the, uh, in, uh, the realization that sin results in bondage. It results in uh, captivity. It always does. It always does. There is always a hook and a bondage aspect uh, to uh, sin. And we will become... Uh, uh, captive to it. And, and no one uh, but the Lord, it seems today, is willing to tell us this. Don't do that. There's a hook. It's going to destroy you. Uh, Jesus taught, as He answered the Pharisees, He said, verily, verily, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. It's just, it, it goes hand in hand. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. And therefore, if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. The bondage of sin. The roads, verse 4 of Zion, mourn because uh, no one comes to the set feast. Her gates are desolate. Her priests sigh. Her virgins are afflicted, and she is in bitterness. And this is talking about how when, all of the, when the Shabbat, the Sabbath day, would come, and then the Jewish religious feasts would happen, people would come in from all over the nation and all over the world, fill the streets of Jerusalem and Jerusalem itself uh, with worship and praise and, and so forth uh, related uh, to, uh, to God and now with this judgment, all of that is gone, and the roads to Zion uh, mourn. And so sin results in a loss of joy, and it always results in a, a, a loss of joy. And uh, here you have uh, is, is kind of the inevitable consequence of sin, because sin 
uh, first it grieves the Holy Spirit, and then it will quench the Holy Spirit. And since joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, joy leaves a person's life in a, in a protracted uh, state of sin. Uh, joy is valuable stuff in life. I don't know if you can survive without it. And it is a holy life that protects this thing called joy within our life so that it doesn't become a casualty. Verse 5, her adversaries have become her master. Her enemies prosper, for the Lord has afflicted her because of the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone into captivity uh, before the enemy. And so here is sin again results in being dominated by our adversaries. If I will not be dominated by God, then I will be dominated by something in this world, and, uh, and it will be dominated by our adversaries. Of course, as Christians, we know we have one, a single great adversary, uh, and that is the devil uh, himself. Jesus speaking again to the religious leaders, he said, you are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Uh, when he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father uh, of it. And so, uh, our adversary, uh, we end up being dominated now by the devil rather than by uh, the Holy Spirit. Verse 6, and from the daughter of Zion, all her splendor has departed. Uh, her princes have become like deer that find no pasture, uh, that is wasting away, uh, that flee without strength uh, before the pursuer. And so, sin results in the loss uh, of beauty, uh, in the loss of, of splendor, as it's described here. It, it departs. And it is an interesting thing to recognize. We recognize it in, in life, uh, hopefully not from our own life, but uh, relationships that we have with other people. Sin takes away people's uh, beauty. It takes a toll upon them. Uh, if you've ever run into somebody that's uh, lived a hard life, or maybe uh, drug abuse or alcoholism or whatever it might be, they've been hard on their body in some way, and you ask them how old they are. And, uh, you know, they tell you that they're 35 years old, and you would have guessed 65, and you're, and you're not joking. It's, it's a witness. It's a testimony uh, to how it is that sin prematurely ages us. It destroys our beauty. But the physical, uh, the physical side of it is the least important of it all. Uh, the, the, the most valuable beauty that it destroys is it destroys our innocence, it destroys our, 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 our heart. It destroys the beauty of our emotions and so forth. And so, uh, this is the destructive force uh, of, uh, of sin as it's described here. Now, here we go. So, a little bit of break. Here we're through, through six verses. And... Uh, we get, we'll get through the entire chapter, even if I have to stay here all night. You may filter out uh, as you desire at the end of the hour. I'm just kidding. We will get through it. But just to stop, just to stop and look at it 
and, and to realize that, you know, when, when God put the book of Lamentations in the Bible, He didn't put it in the Bible so it would be sermon fodder or something that just gets preached and, and we walk away and say, yes, that's interesting or, or yes, that's right. But we, but we really stop and look at it and realize that is the truth about, uh, about sin. Verse 7, uh, in the days of her affliction and roaming, Jerusalem remembers all of her pleasant things that she had in the days of old when her people fell into the hand of the enemy with no one to help her. The adversaries saw her and mocked at her uh, downfall. And so here you have uh, the lesson that sin uh, leads to a life of regret. You see it there at the beginning of the verse, Jerusalem remembers all of her pleasant things. She remembers her former life, and then she remembers what she had, but she has now lost. And sin always ends up in a life where we spend the rest of our life looking back going, uh, if only, I wish I had, uh, if, if I had only done. And, and this is uh, the regret that always uh, follows sin, and Jerusalem is experience, uh, experiencing uh, that. And it's a terrible, terrible thing to have in a person's history. God can rise up, and, and He can restore the, the years that the locusts have, uh, you know, destroyed, and we're thankful for that. Uh, but it's, it's a terrible thing to live through life and, and, uh, and to look and say, if only and, and all, and I'd give my right arm to have another opportunity to make that decision differently and so forth. And, uh, and, and God wants to protect us from that, that kind of of a regret within our lives. And that's part of the reason for His commandments. They're given to protect us from things that we don't even know that they're protecting us uh, from. Sometimes we think that, well, He puts in His commandments concerning sexual purity and so forth, and the sole reason has to do He doesn't want us to get any STDs or something. Oh, no, no. He realizes the consequences of sin are far more far-reaching than, uh, than, uh, than we sometimes realize. Verse 8, Jerusalem has uh, sinned gravely, uh, therefore she has become vile. Uh, all who honored her uh, now despise her because they have seen her nakedness. Yes, she sighs and she turns away. And so sin leads to mockery by others. Uh, it makes us vile. It makes us despised uh, by others. And he talks about when others see our, our nakedness. In ancient times, uh, in ancient Israel, nakedness, uh, particularly the exposure of the private parts, it was always a sign uh, of uh, of uh, disgrace. And so, once the world had brought Judah down to their level in terms of sin, in terms of idolatry, once they had uncovered their nakedness, so to speak, and not only the lewdness associated with idolatry in those days, but, uh, but uh, you know, giving their, the, the deepest and most intimate parts of their life to idols rather than, uh, than, than to God. Here they pull them, the world does, into this kind of idolatry, the same idolatry that marks uh, their life. And then if a Christian allows that to happen, Happen, uh, then immediately after that happens, the person sees you as no different from them or others. They lose respect for us, and then they cast us aside. 
And the devil would really would love nothing more than to lure, and he tries all day, every day. In my life, I hope I'm not a, a, an isolated <laughs> a person on this. I know it's true of all of us, but he works all day, every day to try and lure me, you, into sin. Uh, and then if he's successful in doing it, uh, we won't get any pity from him at all. He will immediately mock our fall uh, when he's successful. And, and so will other people uh, as well. It, one of the things that's interesting, and I think it's true of all Christians, and I certainly um, understand it to be true of me uh, as a pastor, uh, there's a whole world of people who would love to see me fall into uh, disqualifying sin related to my calling as a pastor. And if it were ever in a headline that I did this or this or this and had, had disqualified myself from continuing as a pastor, they would rejoice over it. And they would look at it and say, I knew he was a phony all along. Or they would look at it and say, ah, it's just another hypocrite. All those Christians, they're all the same. And to realize that in the midst of the temptation, the people that look like, you know, they're going to take care of us if we join them in these activities. Ultimately, when we fall, they're the first ones to mock us and the first ones to throw uh, all of it uh, in, uh, in our face. And so the importance of realizing that. As Christians, when we're, when we're walking the talk, there is a purity about our lives. There is an attractiveness about our lives that even with people who are not Christians and involved in sin, they may not want to destroy us, but uh, they want to keep us close. They want something of what we have to rub off on them, just not too much. And, uh, and, so, and so they'll bring us close, so to speak, and, and we need to be close to people in order to be salt and light in the world and so forth, but not on a level that causes us then to be tempted uh, by the sin, uh, sin itself. But there's something attractive about our lives and our holiness, but those same people will work 24-7 to destroy the holiness within our life to try and pull us away from the very thing that makes us different and attractive. And when we do, uh, they'll be uh, the first one uh, to, uh, you know, to kind of throw dirt uh, upon our grave. Verse 9, her uncleanness is in her skirts. She did not consider her destiny. That's a powerful statement. Therefore, her collapse was awesome. She had no comforter. Oh, Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy is exalted. And here you have uh, the, the fact that sin leads to exposure. When it talks about uncleanness in her skirts, this was referring uh, to Judah's sexual immorality. It's uh, their actual uh, sexual immorality that was committed related to idolatry, and then also just committed generally within the culture as they moved away uh, from God. And uh, the interesting thing that happened to Judah, and it happens to people and, and can happen to us even today, she thought uh, that all of this kind of secret sin that was being done in, dark, in the dark, she thought it was hidden behind kind of this, uh, this spiritual veneer uh, and this veneer of respectability uh, when the person was out in the open, out in public, out at temple. They gave one appearance, and then they had this other uh, private kind of, of life. But ultimately, 
God says concerning her sin and anyone's sin, ultimately it always ends up exposed if we uh, continue in it uh, long enough. And so, unrepented of our sin will find us out. Uh, it will be exposed. And, and uh, Moses to the children of Israel, warning them against uh, disobedience in, uh, in the book of Numbers. Uh, but uh, if you do not do so, then take note. Uh, you have sinned against the Lord, he said, and be sure that your sin will find you out. The New Testament equivalent is Galatians 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap. For he who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the flesh will of, uh, uh, sow to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. It's interesting that at the core of this great failure in, in uh, Judah's life is that she forgot her destiny. Uh, and by that, uh, she ceased to take her future into account. All that mattered was the pleasure of the sin here in the moment. There was no con uh, thought of what are the consequences of this sin? Where does this lead? Uh, what is this going to produce uh, within uh, my life? And it also speaks of the fact that Judah had forgotten God's purposes and His plans uh, for uh, her life and, uh, and had begun to disregard them. And losing sight of our destiny, that God has a plan for our lives, that He has a purpose for our lives, He has gifted us, He has a calling upon our lives, will always make us more vulnerable to sin. I think about Joseph in uh, the Old Testament. Here is this young man, probably no more than 17 years old, and, um, and uh, he is, the Bible describes him very accurately, uh, that in form he's a hunk and, uh, and very, very good looking. This means his fate, you know, you didn't have to choose. You got the whole package with this guy. Uh, super cute and uh, a, a hunk of a body. And uh, all of a sudden, he gains the attention of Potiphar's wife, as you're familiar with the story. And Potiphar's wife, Potiphar was a very, very powerful man, and uh, powerful men tend to marry very attractive women. And Potiphar's wife was probably very attractive, and she begins to try to seduce him and pull on his robe and so forth and all. And as she attempts that seduction, it's interesting, one of the things that, uh, uh, that Joseph said to her that was a protection against uh, falling prey to a very serious temptation for a young man of 17 years uh, of age. 130, uh, he'd say, where can I get a cup of coffee and walk in another direction? But not at 17, a big, big temptation that he was in the middle of. And he declared something interesting to Potiphar's wife in rebuffing her. He said, there is no one greater in this house than I, uh, nor has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife, speaking of Potiphar's husband, uh, I mean, uh, the wife's husband, Potiphar himself. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? If I do this, I will sin against your husband, and I will sin against God. And it was that sense of death destiny. God has a call upon my life. He's given me visions. He's given me promises related to my life, and these things are uh, important, and they're more important than the passing pleasure of season uh, for, uh, for the moment, and it's a, it's a tremendous protection. We talked about it this morning, uh, the saying that it takes a passion to conquer pa a passion, and I think the ultimate key 
uh, too holy living is not supremely to hate sin uh, or to hate sin more. The key to holy living ultimately and always is to come to a place that I love God more than my sin or any sin that can be uh, offered uh, to me. That is the great protection, and uh, Judah lost it, and it's important that uh, we don't lose it. As we sit here and think about that for a moment, this is where the devotional life in our Christian's life, uh, Christian life, not only the corporate life that we have as Christians, but individually, personally with God, that hopefully is marked by uh, time spent with the Lord individually to begin a day. Christianity is a relationship with God. That's what it is supremely, a personal relationship with God. And to never allow ourselves to be moved to a place in life where that relationship is no longer precious to me, no longer important to me, no longer the most important uh, part of my day. Uh, always, you can talk to virtually any pastor that you want to, and, uh, and, uh, and certainly talk to any pastor who ends up counseling another pastor who's fallen into adultery or fallen into uh, drug or alcohol abuse or whatever, and you begin to sit down with them and their wife and what happened, and, let, and you start to try and figure out, you know, just what happened here. It wasn't just this, but how did it lead up to this? Always, invariably, there is no exception. Uh, the pastor, once he uh, is honest, he will say, uh, I left my quiet time with the Lord a long time ago. Uh, all of that time was spent in sermon preparation. I neglected my own personal relationship with God. And if that relationship with God is not more important to me uh, than Christian service, or more important to me than any sin that can be offered to me, then we're on, on very, very thin ice. Not only pastors, but everyone. That's why it's so important. And sometimes we wonder related to trials, and God puts us through these great trials that He puts us through, and, and it just seems like, God, did it really have to come down like that? Isn't there like a correspondence course that I could take to learn that lesson that rather than something like this? And, you know, if I uh, sent in, you know, 150 bazooka comics, can I get uh, this little uh, spiritual degree from you or whatever? And these trials come into our lives so often uh, because they force us to deepen our relationship with God in a way that we would never otherwise do it. Almost Almost invariably, uh, when God puts me into a crushing kind of trial in the course of, of my life, uh, almost always, once I've come out of that trial, I, I look back on it and I wonder, I wonder what temptation or potential fall that trial saved me from because it forced me to draw so close to God for the next five minutes or for the next hour that there wasn't room for anything else to even be able to make a peep related to it. 
And, and oftentimes, it's the Lord just deepening that relationship uh, so that, uh, that it, it, it remains and, and continues to grow as the most important part of our life. Well, now, I'm not confident we'll finish the chapter. I'm just kidding. Uh, verse 10, the adversary has spread his hand over all the pleasant things, for she has been seen the nations enter the sanctuary, uh, those whom you commanded not to enter into your assembly. Sin results in being looted and stripped uh, of wealth. And here you have a description of the Babylonian soldiers who have come in, not only looted Jerusalem, they have gone into the temple and looted the temple. And here is Jeremiah witnessing uh, these these uh, Philistines, so to speak, even though they're from Babylon, in the Holy of Holies, taking all of the gold, all of the everything from inside of the temple. They are looting the place uh, uh, of, of the wealth and, uh, and taking whatever they desired. And here are all the riches that God had blessed uh, Judah with. And because of their sin, all of that wealth, all of that blessing was simply transferred uh, to uh, others. And sin does exactly that in our lives if we'll allow it to. It results in the transfer of God-given wealth into the hands of the ungodly. There's a very powerful proverb that speaks uh, to this, and, the, and it speaks of it in the context of prostitution, but it applies really to all kinds of sin, whether it's drug addiction or, or alcohol addiction or gambling. By the way, do you know how much money Americans spend on gambling in a year? $500 billion, half a trillion dollars on gambling. I was raised by two gamblers, by the way. So I know what that, uh, I know what that means for no food in the refrigerator and no milk in the refrigerator and so forth. And uh, what gambling has become today versus back then is absolutely on steroids. But, but the transfer of wealth, Proverbs chapter 6, verse 26, for by means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread, and an adulteress will uh, prey upon his precious life. All of these blessings of God now, uh, because of lust or sin, have been transferred into the hands uh, of others. Verse 11, all her people sigh, they seek bread. They have given their valuables for food to restore life. See, O Lord, and consider, for I am scorned. And so sin uh, can lead to poverty. It leads to hunger. It leads to uh, famine, starvation here in the context, but, uh, uh, but so often in life as well, where sin leads to this kind of poverty. Um, you're probably aware of the fact that we have a tremendous homeless uh, problem in the state of California, and local and state governments don't even know how to begin to even uh, touch it. Uh, but I wonder what the percentage would be. They say that uh, most of it is, is uh, uh, how high the percentage is, whether it's 70 or 80 percent, is uh, by virtue of substance abuse of some kind, where a person that can't hold a job and so, and so forth and then end up homeless and, and in poverty. But if you were to go through these homeless camps and, and all, and to just be able to know, uh, you know, here are people living in poverty and, and searching for food and so forth and all, and except for the grace of God's people uh, coming in and taking care of them, 
and, and put in that position uh, because sin has delivered them in that place. For us as Christians, of course, we don't deal uh, solely on the realm of justice. So we don't just look at people like that and say, well, they get what they deserve. Well, there's nothing we can do about that, and uh, we can't bail everybody out of every personal decision that they make. And the fact of the matter is that's true. That would bankrupt a family. It'll bankrupt uh, the, the treasuries of the world if, if a sin becomes that prevalent and and, uh, and poverty because of sin becomes uh, that prevalent. But we are to be led of the Spirit, uh, individually related to situations for people that are in just such a place, and to say, Lord, am, am I a part of helping them out of, of this place? But the fact that sin uh, leads very often to poverty is all around us. Verse 12, uh, is, it not, is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Behold and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which has been brought on me which the Lord has uh, inflicted in the day of his fierce anger. And so sin uh, leads to sorrow. And the chief sorrow for the child of God is that I'm out of fellowship with God, uh, that realization that I have forced God to chasten me uh, in uh, this, uh, this way. I think about David in this, uh, this regard. And uh, remember when he committed uh, adultery with Bathsheba and then arranged for the death of Uriah the Hittite, her husband, on the battlefield, and then the child uh, that came from his uh, sexual immorality with Bathsheba died. Well, before, uh, before the death of the child, Nathan the prophet comes to David and confronts him related to his sin. And, and, and when Nathan the prophet speaks to David uh, related to all of it, he has said it related to David's sin, you have given the enemies of God uh, reason to blaspheme. And I'm convinced that David would have rather died a thousand deaths than to ever hear those words uh, from the throne of God. And, uh, and here is that clarity related to sin always leading to sorrow. Verse 13, for uh, from above he has set, sent fire into my bones. This is speaking about disease and sickness, and it overpowers them. He has spread a net for my feet and turned me back. He has made me desolate and faint all of the day. And so sin very often leads to sickness and disease. And you think about how much disease comes from, uh, uh, from uh, uh, sin. It is interesting to ask, you know, we're looking at what we're looking at this morning uh, in, in the book of Romans. But uh, when, you, when you look at what God commands us related to uh, expressing ourselves uh, sexually within uh, the covenant of marriage, a man and a woman, and you ask yourself, why is there no disease associated with that sexual expression? But there is disease associated with all other expression. And, and uh, again, the, the recognition that it is, to, it is to live contrary, not only to God's law, but it is to live contrary to the very way that we have been created by uh, God. Sin often leads to sickness and to disease. Verse 14, the yoke of my transgression was bound 
Uh, they were woven together by his hands and thrust upon my neck. He made my strength fail. The Lord delivered me into the hands uh, uh, of those whom I am not able to withstand. And so, uh, sin results in me again, bondage being yoked to, uh, tied to the sin uh, that uh, Judah loved so much, and, uh, and the result is true of us as well. We come to a place where we wake up one morning and we go, I'm hooked. I'm hooked. I cannot get free from this thing that looked so innocent the first time. Now I am addicted to this, and I don't know what to do. Thankfully, though it's waning, within our culture, there is still the attitude, I think I'll go to church. I think I'll go to God. And there's that realization in a person's heart that only God can help me now to get free from uh, where sin uh, has, has, uh, has, has taken me. And, uh, and, and that, that's the truth, uh, the truth of it, the bondage, the absolute uh, bondage that uh, that, uh, that, that occurs as a result of it. Uh, verse 15, the Lord has trampled underfoot all my mighty men in my midst. She has, he has called an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord trampled as in a winepress the virgin uh, daughter of Judah. And so sin here we see, even as it did with uh, Judah, it leads to defeat in battle. And it's certainly physically true of them, but we know it to be very, very true in terms of spiritual warfare. How authoritative do you feel uh, in your Christian life uh, when uh, you're sinning? Uh, pretty limp, right, in terms of authority? How uh, confident do you feel uh, in the midst of spiritual warfare uh, when, uh, you know, you're in the middle of uh, some season of disobeying God's Word? We have no confidence in spiritual warfare. It absolutely sets us up to be defeated and to be destroyed uh, by uh, by the enemy. And when he talks here about uh, the language is so vivid here in, in verse 15, uh, and it talks about uh, Jerusalem being likened to a trampled wine press, and, and it, it gives the imagery of blood everywhere and carnage and devastation. And uh, the carnage was very, very real in a physical uh, uh, realm for them, but it's even worse in the spiritual realm because the consequences can be uh, eternal. Verse 16, uh, uh, sin always leads to weeping. For these things I weep. Jeremiah is speaking of himself, but speaking of Jerusalem as well. This is why he's called the weeping prophet. For these things I weep. Uh, and, and so Jeremiah wept, but again he's talking about the weeping of the city as a result of this devastation. My eye, my eye overflows with water because the comforter who should restore my life is far uh, from me. My children are desolate because the enemy uh, prevailed. And so all of her former comforters, all of the nations that had aligned with her, again, leading her into a rebellion against uh, Babylon, which she happily joined. And, and uh, now that the defeat has occurred, they now uh, uh, shun her, and, uh, and she weeps over this, uh, this destruction. Zion, verse 17, spreads out her hand, but no one comforts her. 
the Lord has commanded concerning Jacob that those around him become his adversaries. Uh, Jerusalem has become an unclean thing uh, among them, and sin always robs us of uh, comfort. It leaves us comfortless. When he talks about uncleanness there, again, it speaks of the fact that Judah had become ritually unclean because of her uh, uh, spiritual immorality and her actual physical uh, immorality. But in terms of for our lives and a broader application of, of uh, how uh, sin results in uh, 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 comfortlessness related to our lives is that no one can effectively comfort or infuse hope into a life of a backslidden Christian who is determined to continue in sin because the only hope for the situation is to re repent of the sin and get uh, right with God, return to God, who is the God of all comfort. But when a person does what Judah does, even as a Christian, and stays in this kind of place, there's no word of comfort that anyone can give to them concerning the mounting consequences of their sin, except get out of the situation uh, that, that you are in make changes. And then verse 18, the Lord is righteous, for I rebelled against His commandment. Hear now, all peoples, and uh, behold my sorrow. My virgins and my young men have gone into captivity. And uh, here is, uh, here is uh, kind of an upturn related to uh, sin. This is a, something right that, that happens here uh, in verse 18. Sin needs to lead to an admission of guilt a confirmation, a verbal confirmation on my part uh, to the justice of God in terms of what He has done in my life in uh, chastening me. Now, Jerusalem here, just uh, it w was filled with a confession now at this point in their broken condition that God was right and everything that he had said to them, and, the, and there was this confession that all that came upon them was absolutely due, them, uh, due to their sin. And that's always a mark of, of repentance, where there's no more excuses, no more blame shifting, uh, no one, I'm not blaming my wife, not blaming my husband, or work pressures, or my childhood, or my parents, or even blaming God. But when a person comes to a place and says, no, this was me, I knew better. Whatever childhood I've had or whatever lack or too much of this or whatever, I knew better than to do that, and I did that. I take full responsibility for what it is that, uh, that I have done. God was righteous in, in how He uh, uh, chastened, uh, uh, chastened me. It's interesting that during the Great Tribulation period, when God pours His wrath out upon uh, the world, there's going to be a chorus that's going to be sung in heaven repeatedly as these judgments are poured out upon the earth. And, and uh, an example of it is in Revelation chapter 16, verse 7. And I heard another from, uh, uh, from the altar saying, even so, Lord God Almighty, righteous and true are your judgments. And uh, when God is forced to judge a person, any person, uh, and, and during the tribulation period because his salvation has been uh, rejected. When all of the facts come out into the open, there will not be a single cry against the righteousness of God's judgment, not now, uh, not in eternity. 
And uh, this, uh, here they come to the place where they go, no more excuses, we take responsibility for it. And it's very, very commendable because a person uh, that, uh, that is able to do this, they're halfway there in terms of, of uh, uh, the next thing is to simply confess their sin to God and then to ask for forgiveness. So many people stay in that place of, it was her fault, it was his fault, it was this, it was this. They're always the victim uh, when anyone can look at the situation and say, no, it's your own decisions related to sin uh, that puts you in that, in that place. So, a mark of health there in verse 18. Verse 19, I called for my lovers, but they deceived me. Uh, my priests and my elders uh, breathed their last in the city while they sought food to restore uh, their life. And sin always results in the realization that I've been deceived. I believed a lie. And this is one of the most awful things related to sin is that when uh, uh, we engage in it and we give ourselves to it, people told us it would be this and it would be that, and then somewhere along the line we realize they completely deceived me related to this. They did not tell me uh, the whole uh, truth. And, uh, and then to realize, uh, as is important for us to realize today, only God will tell us the truth about sin. Uh, nobody else in the world uh, is going to tell us the truth about sin. He'll never deceive us. That's one of the important things about this chapter. See, uh, verse 20, O Lord, that I am in distress. My soul is troubled, my heart is overturned within me, for I have been very rebellious. Outside of the sword bereaves at home, it is like death. And so the distress that was in their life because of sin, and uh, sin uh, always leads to a very deep distress uh, of soul. When I uh, come to grips with my own sin and think about the destruction that it has brought into my life, this was dawning upon them. And verse 21, they have heard that I sigh, and no one comforts me. Uh, all my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it, you've judged us. Uh, bring on the day you have announced that they may become like me. And so sin, uh, all their enemies were scorning them for their sin and their fall and, and the judgment that came uh, upon them. And, uh, and the same thing, again, as I've mentioned earlier, uh, people will be happy to heap upon us uh, if we follow them into sin and throw away our Christian uh, witness. Uh, verse 22, let all of their wickedness come before you and do to them as you have done to me for all my transgressions, for my sighs are many and my heart is faint. And so here we have uh, Judah uh, desiring the judgment of her enemies. So here she's thinking about all of the glee, all of the happiness and excitement uh, that her enemies took in in, uh, in her uh, judgment, and she called on God to judge their sin as well. Now, I don't think that what we have here in verse 22 is uh, this, you know, purely a cry, uh, some carnal cry for vengeance. But I think this is the cry uh, of someone, as Judah is in this place, this longing that their sin would be, uh, the sin of these others around them would be uh, openly judged in the same way that God had judged Judah's sin as a protective measure to others. 
Judah is saying, judge their sin. Judge the sin of the people that drew me into this sin so that no one else will become a victim of their lies and deception in the same way uh, that that I I did and uh, and be drawn into the path that uh, they drew me on, but uh, so they can see it for what it is and uh, see it, the judgment of God upon it, and then flee from it, that they will handle uh, the sin in exactly the opposite way that I did. And that's one of the things that we long for. We do, uh, uh, life is a, uh, uh, we're always learning in life. It's always teaching us something. And uh, I wish I learned everything that I learned in life the easy way, but most of what I've learned and stuck, uh, I've learned the hard way. Uh, But, you know, there is this uh, you know, when a person involves themselves in sin on, on whatever kind of a degree or whatever, there is a longing once God delivers us from us and brings us out of it, a longing that no one else would be pulled into that same lie, into that same sin. And it's one of the reasons that I teach the Bible the way uh, that I do. I, I don't, I have difficulty glossing over uh, a, a, lot of, uh, a lot of things, and it, it's because as I see the wisdom of God in all of this, and I see how important it was to me or how important it would have been to me if I had known it earlier in my life, I want everybody to, uh, to uh, know it so that no one will ever experience the sin that I have experienced in life. And, uh, and I think we all feel that way, uh, no matter how, uh, you know, shallow or how deep we explore the depths uh, of, of sin. And so what she's declaring here in verse 22 is a very strong, very open rejection of her former life. I want nothing to do with it anymore, and I don't want anyone else to uh, either. So, a very valuable chapter, I think, again, especially in the light of the age in which we live, this tremendous expose of sin and its consequences, and as a warning to us tonight not to go down that path. There is a way that seems right unto man, the Bible says, but the end thereof is the way of uh, death. And I think one of the great uh, protections in the face of temptation in this day and the accessibility of sin, uh, even for us as Christians, is unparalleled in human history uh, by virtue of technology and a lot of other things. Um, to stand in the face of, of, of temptation, how widespread it is, how heavily represented it is. Again, the access that we have uh, to it, uh, things like this are important to understand. One of the great protections in the face of temptation is to do what Lamentations chapter 1 forces us to do, and that is to think about the consequence of this sin if I commit it before I commit it. What will this do to my husband? What will this do to my wife? What will this do to my children or my grandchildren or my parents or my grandparents? What will this do to the name of Christ? What will this do to my friends? And to really stop and think about before committing the sin, to think about where does this lead? What am I going to unleash related to my life? 
And if anyone gives any kind of sober uh, uh, consideration to that, it's a strong motivation to turn my back on the temptations of this world and to uh, run, even as Joseph did, without his uh, robe in the opposite direction. But not only to consider uh, the consequences of my sin, if I were to commit them, but then in having considered the consequences that will inevitably come my way, to then decide ahead of time, to decide before the moment of temptation in the area or one, two, three, four areas in which you know are the greatest areas of temptation in your life and in my life, and to look and to say, I do not want to be making the decision on whether I'm going, what decision I'm going to be make, I'm going to make when this temptation is laid on my lap. But I want that decision to be made long before that ever comes uh, my way and to, de to determine between me and God that when it occurs, I'm going to flee. But I'm not going to flee on the basis of emotion. I'm going to flee on the basis of something deeper, having explored what it is that this sin will do to my life and to people around me, and it's, it, it will come out of a spiritual realm in our lives. It will come out of a rational side of our life in the midst of a world where almost everything is being decided uh, emotionally uh, in a moment in time. And so this does something very, very uh, important uh, in our life, and so I wanted to uh, give it the kind of time uh, that, uh, that I think that it warrants. Maybe, you know, uh, back in 1980 or 1960, uh, I, I might just fly through all of this because this would be all patently obvious uh, to people who are pretty well steeped within, uh, uh, within the Bible and that the culture is still heavily dominated uh, by a Christian ethic, but those days are long gone. And so, where we kind of bog down and where we spend time and where we would have spent time 30 or 40 years ago and where we spend time today shifting very, very much uh, as, as the world shifts around us. And the wonderful thing about the Bible, it is, it is a living book, and it speaks to every age and everything that we would face. Let's stand together now and let's pray.